Well, good morning again. Um, I can't believe they made me do that video. Can you believe that? I want you to know that if I ever subject myself to such humility, it's, it's out of love for you guys. Uh, but I did have fun. That was a fun video. Uh, if you are here with us this morning and you have not seen last week's sermon, uh, this is one of those rare times where you really do need to see last week's sermon. You're, it's really the introduction and the background for today's sermon. This is, like, this is like a second part to one sermon. It's just a long sermon. You know when Paul preached and Eutychus fell out of the window because it got so late and he fell asleep? That's like this kind of sermon. Uh, it's, you can't give a TED Talk and explain theological truths like Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6 in a, in a short minute. So um, last, this whole series has been on repentance. And we began with repentance. What is repentance? What does repentance even mean? What is that word, metanoia, that, that changing of the mind? And so we, we finally gave it a definition after looking at Scripture because facts equal meaning. And we need the scripture to understand what it means. And we looked at the Bible and the word repentance, and we saw how it means when your mind is changed to think about God or something the way that God does, and your heart is changed to want what God wants. So repentance isn't just an intellectual thing. It's your heart and mind. The, the word for mind in the New Testament, the Greek word for mind, means the will your emotions, your desires too. So that's a philosophical difference, a worldview difference. But repentance means the changing of the mind and the heart. And we looked at two weeks ago how repentance, this changing, leads us to confession. That confession is a response to repentance. When God convicts us, you know, in John it tells us that the the Spirit convicts us of sin, judgment, and righteousness, and uh, God convicts us. That conviction is to change our mind. That's what repentance is. We, We change our mind and heart, so He convicts us, and when we change to think like He thinks, then it leads us to confess our sins. You know, what I did was wrong, and what God says is right. It leads us to confess Jesus as Lord, and so repentance you know, leads to confession. And then we looked at last week, confession or repentance really means to lead us toward obedience also. So just changing your mind and heart, you can repent and not yet do the thing that God is wanting you to do. You've changed direction in your heart and mind, but maybe there's a next step and God wants you to follow him. And that's the second response to repentance uh, in the New Testament. And so last week we looked at Hebrews chapter, well, Hebrews chapters 1 through 5, and we never really got to 6 to the disappointment of some of you. Uh, We finally got to 6, 4 through 6, because in that passage, uh, the church has really uh, wrestled with this passage for thousands of years. I mean, this is a difficult passage, and you have to know the context of the whole letter of Hebrews. You have to understand the Jewish worldview and what God was doing with the Jews, converting them to be Messianic Jews, and what that meant to the temple and sacrifice and tradition. And... um, And then, you know, you have to understand the language and the words that are used and different English translations kind of word it differently. So it makes sense that it confuses even really good Bible teachers and scholars. And scholars within the same denomination, some at the same church, come up with different opinions on it. So it's not an easy passage. So we got to Hebrews chapter 6 because there's one place in the whole Bible that says there's a moment at which repentance is impossible. There is a situation in which 
You can't repent. And so what is that? When are you not going to repent is the big question. So I gave an introduction to Hebrews that I'm just going to quickly skim over. And last week, we looked at the question, who is Hebrews written to? And without re-preaching last week, it's written to Jewish Christians, Jews that had placed their faith in Christ as the Messiah, and not just as their Messiah, but as their Lord and Savior, realizing he's the sacrifice for their sins. That's who they repent to. That's who they confess to. That's who makes them righteous before God. And those are just some verses on there. Just for some of you that really wrestle with this, you should know the book of Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians. They had made a profession of faith. These were not Jews who were thinking about Christianity. These were already confessing, believing Jews that had said Jesus is the Messiah. And then we looked at the second question, why was the author writing to them? You know, the book of Hebrews is titled Hebrews. Why is it titled Hebrews? That's not the first word in the, in the book. And it doesn't say this book is titled Hebrews. Well, it was quickly named and titled Hebrews in the first and second century. We have writings of this because it was clearly after reading the letter, after reading this, this book, this letter, it was written to Jewish Christians. And so the Jews at that time were called the Hebrews because of their language, uh, their tradition, their, their adherence to the Mosaic law. So it connected with their language. That's why they're called Hebrews. It's because of their language, the Hebrew language. And so it's written and it's known and it's been in church history as written to the Hebrews. And he's writing this, whoever this author is, we don't know who it is, he's writing this because he wants these Jewish Christians not to revert back to a life of slavery under the law of Moses. These Jewish Christians should be set free from the temple. They should be set free from needing a high priest from the tribe of Levi once a year on Yom Kippur to offer a sacrifice in the Holy of Holies on the Ark of the Covenant, where the mercy seat is, and put the seven drops of blood to ask for forgiveness for the priest, and then to go around and put seven more drops of blood, or sprinkle seven more sprinkles of blood, however you want to translate that, that's up to you, I don't even care about that, Uh, but seven more times for the people, because that's what they had been doing for 1,500 years. The Jews knew that in order for me to be made right with God, my sins need to be forgiven. That's only through the blood. And so that's why the tabernacle and the temple even exist. The temple is just a permanent tabernacle. Tabernacle means dwelling, and it was portable. And then they built the temple, Solomon did, because his dad wanted to, and God was cool with that. And so they built Solomon's temple. That got destroyed. And then Herod's temple in Jesus's day was just a huge version of, uh, of the tabernacle like a building. And so the idea is, this is where God dwells, and this is where you go to find repentance. This is where you go to find forgiveness. This is where you go to experience the presence of God. This is the place, and this is the law in which we, if we want to be made right with God, if we want to connect with God, if we want to walk with God, we need to go there, and we need to follow these laws. And so the Hebrew author was saying, listen, you guys, there's a Jesus for that. There's a Jesus for all those washings, the purifications, the Sabbath, circumcision. That that comes up a lot in Hebrews, and it's good that it does. 
because circumcision was a Jewish man's way of entering into Judaism if he wasn't already Jewish. On the eighth day as a boy, a baby boy that was born, he would be circumcised. That was his sign, his blood covenant into the Jewish people. If you were a convert, you would get circumcised whenever, like when you're older, you would get circumcised to say, now I'm a Jewish man and I am okay under the law of Moses. I can now enter into this covenant. So that gets brought up a ton. Well, the Hebrew author is like, you don't have to do that anymore. There's a Jesus for that. So you do not have to become Jewish in order to be right with God. And so in chapter 6, we finally get to chapter 6, he says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, or you could say the Messiah. Let's leave the beginning doctrine, the beginning teachings of the Christ, and go on to maturity. That's the point. Let's mature and grow. We can move past the law. I want to tell you how Jesus fulfills all that stuff and how you can follow Christ without following the Mosaic law. You don't have to follow the Leviticus. Read Leviticus. You don't have to do that anymore. You, you, you don't have to do that to be made right with God. You can follow Jesus. You no longer need the law. And not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. So the author of Hebrews was saying, don't go back to the law that's dead works. Works meaning they're religious works of righteousness, but dead meaning they have no power. They seem like they do something for you, but they don't. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and instructions about washings because they would have to purify themselves uh, with certain washings in order to be made clean to even go into the tabernacle or temple to be recognized as right before God. You can't even offer your sacrifice until you've made, you know, got your house in order. So he's saying, I don't want to have to lay a new foundation again with you. You've already heard this. You know that Jesus fulfills all this uh, of, of laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits, meaning we're going to graduate. Uh, leaving these things is not saying they don't count anymore. It's like graduating from ninth grade to 10th grade. Graduation doesn't mean you forget the ninth grade. It just means you build upon that. You don't lay a new foundation. You have the foundation. You need to advance to the, you need to build a structure on that foundation. So the author is telling them, he's warning them against reverting back to Judaism. And what that means to you, if you're not, if you're feeling like, I've never read the Old Testament, so this is shaky. What it means is you do not have to follow this old covenant, or we call it an Old Testament. Testament comes from the Latin word testamentum. It means covenant. You don't have to follow this old covenant any longer in order to be with God and to be right before God and to dwell with God. There's a new covenant, a new testament in which you could be made right with God. So the whole letter of Hebrews, you can read it from chapter 1 all the way through to 13, the whole letter brings up these Jewish laws and says, Jesus is better than that. The blood of bulls and goats won't work. You need Jesus. Uh, the gathering, the Sabbath, the, you name it. Jesus is our fulfillment of this. So he's warning them, don't go back to the Mosaic law to be righteous. Then he moves on to the highly debated passage, but this is all in context. Hebrews chapter six. He says, for it is impossible. Now he had just said, let us move on to maturity and now the first Greek word in this sentence is impossible. Now in the English it's not, but the, the, the emphasis is 
We want to mature, right? You want to grow. You want to grow in your relationship with God. You want to learn about him more. You want to follow him better. You want to grow in your faith. You want to grow in your walk. Well, guess what? It's impossible. So there's this scenario in which there, there, it's impossible, for it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. So verse four says, impossible for those people uh, described in verses four and five to bring them or restore them back to repentance, verse six. It's impossible to do that while they're crucifying Jesus again and putting him to open shame. This is impossible. So we want to know, when is repentance impossible? So let's walk through the verse. In verse 4, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. What does enlightened mean? Well, in the New Testament, you can read all about light. You could read all about Jesus being the light. You could read all about Jesus being the light and the light of men, he enlightens our minds, he brings us the truth. So in context, in this Hebrew letter, he's saying it's impossible for those who have been enlightened. Enlightened to what? What he's just been writing for five chapters, that Jesus is our high priest, he's the Messiah, he's the one. That's the enlightenment. It's the enlightenment of knowing the truth. It mirrors back to Acts chapter two. If you remember when Peter during Pentecost Acts chapter 2 preaches, 3,000 Jews were saved. They had come for the festival. They were enlightened. They heard the preaching of the word, and they realized Jesus is the Messiah, the one that you guys crucified. He's the one that God raised him from the dead, and he's the one that we need to trust in. That's enlightened. So that's enlightened. Uh, first, I should say, when he says it's impossible, for it is impossible, impossible means it's not possible. I know that seems kind of silly, but I just want to give you three verses where the Hebrew author uses the word impossible. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, he says it's impossible for God to lie. When he says impossible, he means it cannot happen, Hebrews 6, 18. Hebrews 10, verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So when the Hebrew author uses the word impossible, he's saying cannot happen. This is impossible. Just like it's impossible for God to lie, just like it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And then in chapter 11, verse 6, a verse that uh, Christians who have been going to church for a long time, they know this verse. It is impossible to please God without faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So this word impossible means you can't do it. According to the Hebrew author, you're not going to be able to do it. Uh, It's impossible for those who have been enlightened And then he says, who have tasted the heavenly gift. Now, this is where some people get this passage mistaken because uh, I've, and I've read a number of commentaries on this now. Some people say, well, these people have tasted the heavenly gift, meaning like they've had a little sip, they've had like a little nibble of the heavenly gift. The the word for gift uh, means like a, a spiritual gift. That's how it's used every single time in the New Testament, including here who have tasted the heavenly gift. It doesn't mean taste like a taste test because, and you can know this, in Hebrews chapter two, verse nine, it says that Jesus tasted death for all mankind. Now, when Jesus tasted death, did he just nibble on death? 
Did he just have a little kind of distant, impersonal experience with death? No. When the Hebrew author says Jesus tasted death on our behalf, it means he experienced the whole thing 100%. It was personal. He tasted it. No one else tasted it for him. He experienced this. So those who have been enlightened, those who have tasted of the heavenly gift, that means the gift from the Holy Spirit, those who have this, the third description, descriptor, those who have shared in the Holy Spirit. This, this verb for shared is used six times in the New Testament. It's used five times in the book of Hebrews. All five times that it's used, it means to partake of, like you're a participant, you share in this. The other time it's used is in Luke, literally almost translated in every major English translation that you have, it means partakers. Someone who has taken the Holy Spirit. So when he says, and those who have shared in the Holy Spirit means they have become partakers of it. Outside of the Bible, during the first and second century, this word for shared is also used by a guy named Clement. He, he, we've translated his Greek, ancient Koine Greek manuscripts uh, into English, and it's found in 1 Clement. That's what, it's not a Bible passage, but you could probably find it in, ca- in a Catholic Bible. Uh, but it's a letter. It's found in 1 Clement. A guy named Ignatius also used this verb during the same time, the, two, the multiple times that those two end up using it. It means of someone who has fully partaken and is using. So when this Hebrew author says they've shared in the Holy Spirit, he means they have the Holy Spirit, they've experienced the Holy Spirit, and they're participating with the Holy Spirit. Does this sound like a Christian to you? It does to me. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. Anyway, they've tasted the goodness, the fourth descriptor, they've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. Now, this is really cool because it doesn't say they've tasted the Word of God. They've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. These Jewish Christians who grew up Jewish, who grew up understanding the law of Moses, tasted the Word of God for the first time in a new way when they placed their faith in Jesus, realizing he was the Messiah because that's who it's written to and that's who's described throughout the entire book. They've experienced the goodness. They've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. They know God's Word is good now because now they understand they've been enlightened who this is really talking about. And what is the Word of God talking about, even the Old Testament? It all points to Jesus. Jesus is the centerpiece of all the Scripture. So they've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. And the last, they've tasted the powers of the age to come. Now, if you were a Jewish man living in the first century, it's not a mistake. You can read it in commentaries. You can read it in Clement and Ignatius, the way they use the words. This is a description, a very full description of Acts chapter 2. Every single Jew that was converted at Pentecost, and that's where the church began to grow, experienced these five things. They were enlightened. They tasted of the gift of the Holy Spirit. They shared in the Holy Spirit. They, they tasted the powers of the age to come, the powers and signs of the Holy Spirit, not just the tongues of fire, but the healings, the signs and wonders. These are Jewish Christians who know what it means to place their faith in Christ. They are full-blown believers. They've placed their faith in Christ. There's no way that these are not Christians. They're Jewish Christians, but they're Christians. So he goes on to say, it is impossible 
for those Jewish Christians who, and then the fullest description in the entire New Testament of Pentecost, of the Jew coming to faith in Christ, who have done all these things, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. Why? Because in verse 6 in the beginning it says, and they have fallen away. They place their faith in Christ. They know that he's the Messiah. You read, down late, you read later in uh, Hebrews chapter 10 that they suffered once they placed their faith in Christ. They had to give up things. They were persecuted. They had to give up their belonging. They were misplaced. Ever since Acts 2, Jews experienced uh, persecution when they placed their faith in Jesus. Uh, Jewish Christians were not popular for the first almost 300 years of the, new, of the, new, of the turning of the, of the millennium. So they were unpopular and they were persecuted. And he writes these Jews saying, you guys experienced it, you tasted it. Well, those that have, and then they've fallen away, it's impossible to restore them back to repentance. So what does it mean, and they've fallen away? What does that verb mean, to fall away? Does it mean these people have completely given up their faith? They, they, they believed in Christ, and now they're like, I don't believe in God at all. Are these atheists? Is this apostasy? Well, no, because the Greek word apostasia, which is used in the book of Hebrews, is not used here. It's not talked about here. It's not saying they don't believe at all. These Jews are reverting back to Judaism. That's why the Hebrew author keeps telling them, hey, you don't need the high priest. You have Jesus. If they were atheists, he wouldn't even be talking about that. They keep reverting back to the Mosaic law to be made righteous. So these are not atheists, and these are not um, these are not those that commit apostasy, meaning they, they don't believe. That's for, the apostasy really comes from apistis, which pistis is uh, faith in Greek, and a, the alpha, means like no, so no faith. That's where we get apostasy from. This isn't written about here. These aren't apostasy. This isn't apostasy. The fallen away means these Jews were holding on to Judaism, not applying Jesus' fulfillment to the Old Testament. They wanted the law of Moses to remain in effect. That's why the author keeps telling them, you don't need a different high priest. You don't need someone to go into the Holy of Holies and offer the sacrifice for you. That's not where you're going to find repentance. That's not where you're going to find justification. You can't be made right with those religious laws because that law is no longer in effect. We have a new covenant. There is a new testament, a covenant through Jesus' blood He's our high priest. He's our sacrifice. You don't need the temple anymore. You don't need to go to the temple and say, here's my lamb. Let me take away sin. God doesn't work that way anymore because Jesus has come. He's the sacrificial lamb. So the author continues to write about this. If you look later in Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 18, he's still arguing about the same exact topic. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Let us hold fast. Hold fast to what? Not to Judaism, but that Jesus is our high priest. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the holy place behind the curtain. You know what that means to a first century Jew? This is the high priest that goes beyond the curtain, beyond the veil, into the holy of holies to make the sacrifice. Guess what? Our hope, our anchor is Jesus, and he has gone into the Holy of Holies for us. We don't need another sacrifice, and we don't need another priest, because Jesus is our mediator. He's our high priest. Verse 20, where Jesus has gone, talking about behind the veil in the Holy of Holies, 
as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I stressed this last week. I'm just barely touching on it. He's saying, listen, and Jesus is a legitimate high priest. This isn't contrary to the Old Testament. When Jesus came, he wasn't a contradiction to the law. Paul has to write about this multiple times to the Romans and the Galatians. Listen, I'm not saying the law doesn't count and it's not bad. It was a teacher for you and it's good. Jesus is a legitimate high priest for you. He can be your priest. He can be your mediator between God. He's in the order of Melchizedek. You don't need the Levites anymore. No one has to worry about genealogy with those who came from Aaron. You don't need that anymore. Then again, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, therefore, brothers, he continues on this. I'm just telling you, read the letter of Hebrews. Read chapter 6 through 10. You know what you hear a lot? You hear a lot about Jesus being the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And some of you are like, I don't even know what this means. Here's what it means. Jesus is a legitimate priest for you. You don't need to go back to the Old Testament and get scared and think, do I need to follow the Sabbath? Do I need to follow these laws? Do I have to observe this day and this festival? Do I need to do it like this? Do I need this offering? You don't need any of that. There's a Jesus for that. Jesus accomplished everything. He fulfilled the entire law. You do not have to go back to it. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. So he's been writing about this for chapters now, and he's like, listen, brothers and sisters, we can go to the real holy of holies. We don't need to go to the place in Jerusalem. That, that building one day is going to burn down, and it did in AD 70. That's going to be destroyed. We don't need that building to be right with God and to follow him. We can enter into the real Holy of Holies because Jesus entered that place which the tabernacle and the temple was just a shadow, a blueprint of the real place in heaven. We enter that because Jesus already did that for us. We can enter it with confidence, with boldness. We can stand before the throne of grace. Why? Because Jesus is our real high priest, he's our real sacrifice, and we no longer need the law in order to be made right with God and to be clean before him and to be righteous before him. So, to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, that phrase is really important. In verse 20, by the new and living way, the Hebrew author was telling these Jews that had been following these customs for 1,500 years, there's a new way to do it. And that was hard for them to stomach. Many of them had such a difficult time believing that what we've been doing for 1,500 years, that you can find the instructions in the Old Testament, our only Bible at the time, what we find in here we no longer need, that was so difficult for them to, to, to grasp. There's a new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean. This author is telling these Jews something they never thought imaginable. You had to go to a physical place, give a physical offering, do these laws, obey these laws in order for you to think. My sins are sprinkled with the blood and are covered. Now he's saying our hearts are sprinkled clean. How? By our high priest, our great priest that did it for us. He was our sacrifice. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Do we need to follow the ceremonial washings that you find in the book of Leviticus? You could read Leviticus. There are some washing, purification rules that you would have to follow. 
God wasn't lying when he gave those rules. That was legitimate. They needed to do that in order to be clean. We don't have to anymore, though. Not because it was wrong or bad, but the law was a guardian, a, a, a schoolmaster over us. It guarded us until the time of Christ when Jesus came and set us free from the bondage of slavery. We can't fulfill the law. 1,500 years of showing a people you can't obey the law. Your traditions and your rules, they're never going to make you right with God. So this Hebrew author is really pushing this hard. Uh, so we can draw near to God without the temple. Why? Because of Jesus. So back to Hebrews chapter 6. The fallen away is describing the Jews who fell away from grace and tried to stand on the law of Moses in order to be right. They kept wanting to revert back to Judaism. And I want to show you how that's used in the New Testament, not just in Hebrews. I spent all sermon last week trying to explain that. Even throughout the New Testament, Paul, Peter, and John use this verb of falling away. It's pipto. It doesn't sound fancy. It's a very cool Greek verb, pipto. P-I-P-T-O, or Pi, um, uh, Iota, Pi, Tau, Omicron, or Omega. The last word is Omega. It's Pipto. It means to, to, to fall away, to, to fall. And so Paul and Peter and John use this, and I want to show you where they use it. In 2 Peter chapter 3, what does falling away mean in the New Testament? 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. Therefore, dear friends, since you know this in advance, be on your guard so that you are not led away by the error of lawless people and fall from your own stable position. That word for fall is the same Greek verb for fall as in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 6. Fall. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Now, I don't have enough time to preach Second Peter but you can look at this section. He's not talking to lost people, and he's not saying, hey, you're going to fall away, lose your salvation. That's not what he, you can read Second Peter. He's not saying, be careful so you don't lose your salvation. He's saying, be careful so that you don't get tricked, so that you don't forget the standing you have on your faith in Christ. He's the only one that makes you right. Uh, instead, grow. Again, the maturity the growth is the centerpiece, just like in Hebrews chapter 6. Therefore, let us, let us move on to maturity. Growth is still the point when it comes about to falling. Uh, Paul uses this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 4. And this is a, this is a tough passage to, to really understand. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ, and you have fallen from grace. That word fallen is the same verb pipto as in Hebrews chapter 6. Same root verb for pipto. It means fallen away. He's saying, you who are trying to be justified by the law, just like the Jews in Hebrews, you who are trying to be justified by following this law are alienated from Christ. What does alienated from Christ mean? I mean, that doesn't sound good. You're alienated from Christ and you've fallen from grace. How do you fall from grace? Well, I need to give you a little background of the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians is written by Paul to the churches in Galatia. Galatia is a region. There's multiple churches. And he writes to them because they're hearing a false gospel. And the whole letter of Galatians is all about this is the truth of the gospel. This is what the gospel means. 
So Galatians chapter 2, to take you back to get the context of Galatians 5, Paul is writing to them and he says, I went up according to the revelation and presented to them the gospel I preach among the Gentiles. So Paul is giving an argument here. He's already argued for his apostleship. Now he's saying, listen, I shared with the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, Peter, James, and John, I shared with them the gospel I preach, but privately to those recognized as leaders, talking about the the leaders he mentions later. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running in vain, but not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised even though he was a Greek. Now just pause for a moment. Circumcision is not just a medical procedure in the New Testament. Circumcision is a symbol. It's a blood covenant sign in which you enter into the people of God. It was very important. So when Paul uses circumcise, he's not just talking about a one-day act that you heal from eight days later or however long it takes. He's talking symbolically and literally, you really do get circumcised, but it's initiation into the Jewish people. So he's saying to be circumcised, to become Jewish and to obey the law, the law of Moses. So I shared the gospel with the leaders and even Titus was like, I don't need to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. I don't need to become Jewish in order to be right and that's the gospel that Paul preached. Verse four, This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus in order to enslave us. So these Jewish guys from Jerusalem come and they see that we don't have to be Jewish in order to be made right with God. We don't even have to get circumcised. That's like one of the basic covenant laws to become righteous with God. You You can't even say you've entered into repentance if you're not a circumcised Jewish male if you're not converted to it. So you can't even be right with God. And he's like, we don't have to do that anymore. But we did not give up and submit to these people for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. We wanted you guys to know the good news of God that you can be made right with him apart from the law. You don't have to follow the law. You don't have to become Jewish. Then chapter 2, verse 11. But when Cephas, that's Peter, Cephas is Peter's name, the apostle Peter, Peter the disciple. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood, I want to hear you say it, because he stood. Now let me ask you a question. Paul didn't go to Galatia and preach this until like 15 years after Pentecost. Was Peter a Christian? Yeah, did Peter place his faith in Christ? Okay. Romans chapter 8, for there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul just wrote, Paul, Peter stood condemned. That's in the, the, the chapter. What does he mean? Why is he standing condemned? What does that mean? It doesn't mean he's lost his faith. It doesn't mean he's an atheist. It doesn't mean he's walked away from God. It doesn't mean he's a non-believer. But Paul is giving a real-life situation. I rebuked Peter, an apostle to another apostle, to his face, in public, in front of everybody, He stood condemned. Why? What did Peter do? That was so horrible. Uh, Verse 12. For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. James is the leader in Jerusalem. He's the Jewish elder, the top elder in Jerusalem. He's a uh, Messianic Jew. He believes in his half-brother Jesus. He's converted the letter of James. So James is the leader. You can read about this in Acts chapter 15. Paul's giving this illustration. Some guys came from James, meaning they came from Jerusalem. These these Jewish men came from Jerusalem. 
um, from James. So for, Paul, for Peter, regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, these Jewish men, these Jewish leaders, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Who's that party? This isn't a birthday party. This is the group of Jewish men who say, you can believe in Jesus, he can be your Messiah, but you also need to stay Jewish, and you got to follow the law. And here's the Old Testament, and here's the rules. you got to wash your hands, you got to do the purification, you got to give the offerings, we need the Levites. These Jews were saying, don't take my culture, don't take my tradition, believe in Jesus, but is God getting rid of all the Jewish culture here? What is going on? So these Jews did not like it. So they came, and uh, when they did come, the circumcision party, this is what happened. Verse 13, then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Not old Barney, the son of encouragement. So this is what happened. If you don't know Jewish culture, just hear this. In the Old Testament, the law says that there are some foods that are unclean, like pork. You can't eat pork. And also, you can't eat with Gentiles if you're a Jew, because that makes you unclean. If you're unclean, you can't go to the tabernacle or to the temple. If you can't go there, you can't give your offerings and your sacrifices. If you can't give the offerings and the sacrifices, you can't be forgiven by God. It's a big mess, so you don't touch the Gentiles, okay? So Peter, this is 15 years after Pentecost, at least, or 13, maybe. Peter is eating with the Gentiles. So you could just see Peter there. His hands are greasy. He's got barbecue all over his face. He's been chowing down. He's like, pork's the best thing. You remember Acts chapter 10, where God had to give him the blanket three times to tell him, don't call this food unclean. It's fine. Okay, Peter finally got that. This is after Acts chapter 10. We're closer to Acts 15 and 16. Peter's over in Galatia just chowing down on some barbecue ribs. Just so good. These Jewish men come, and he's like, oh, no. This is against the law. He feels guilty about it. He feels shamed about it. And he just scoots over away and eats with the Jews the clean Jew food. He, he only clean food. Well, the other Jews are looking at Peter like, what changed his mind? Uh, but we don't want to be outsiders. I mean, Peter's Peter. This is like the Peter. So they go over to the Jews and like, yeah, we're righteous. And, and then Barnabas, Mr. Son of Encourage, is like, yeah, I guess this is the better way, and goes over. It gets everybody. Well, that's what happened in and, and verse 14. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, man, I wish I could just preach on this for another hour. They didn't preach anything. You need to hear this. They didn't give a sermon. They didn't give a bad Bible study. They didn't give a bad Sunday school. All they did was demonstrate with their actions that if you really want to be right with God, you've got to follow these rules. And Paul said, when I saw that and what it did to those other Gentiles sitting there thinking, maybe I've got to become Jewish to be made right with God. When I saw that, I rebuked Peter to his face because they were de deviating from the truth of the gospel. And they didn't even teach anything. They were just doing it. If I had to translate, because I don't have more time with you because you guys don't give me enough time. <laughs> the Gentile version of this is when you wear a suit and you come to church 
And some distant person from God sitting next to you thinks, if I want to be clean before God, I got to wear that suit. You are deviating from the truth of the gospel. It's not bad to wear suits, just like it's not bad to eat with Jews. But what Peter and Barnabas did was demonstrate if you really want to be right with God, you got to follow these rules. And that was a lie. That's not the truth. Jesus set us free from the bond of slavery. There is no more law that we need to follow in order to be right, those laws. So that's, that's the Gentile application that we get later. There's a thousand applications for one verse, but this is really talking about Jews. So when I, when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone, if you who are a Jew live like a Gentile, that, that phrase, live like a Gentile, means you don't follow the law. You were just eating pork yesterday. Stop lying. You're a, you're a hypocrite. He's saying if you live like a Gentile because Jesus has set you free and you don't have to do that to be made right with him, if you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? You hypocrites, stop giving that sermon to them by your actions. Verse 15, we are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, and yet, this is Paul who's a Jew, talking to other Jews, about other Jews, saying, we are Jews, we're not Gentile sinners, I was born a Jew, yet, because we know that, and this is the key of the book of Galatians, a person is not justified by the works of the law, it's the Mosaic law, it's not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Don't bring the law into this to think that you are better. And there's different laws. Don't just think, oh, the Jews have this problem, but Gentiles don't. We have laws too. We have religious traditions. We have denominations. We have certain things. We have certain preferences. We have certain rules that we say, this is the way God really wants it. And if Jesus were here, he'd dress like me, act like me, come to my church and think this is how it ought to be done. We Gentiles can do this too. And Paul's saying, you don't have to. You do not have to do that. We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners and yet all that. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because the works of the law, no human being will be justified. You can't be justified by works. He continues to explain this in chapter three, verse 23. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law. Before faith in Christ came, I was like, we gotta do this. This is the only Bible we have. This is the Old Testament law. We have to do this. We're confined under the law, imprisoned. We were slaves to the law in prison until the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ. In, this, in chapter three, he's saying the law isn't bad. It's not like God was bad for giving us the law. He's just saying the law is done. It's not abolished. It's not contradictory. It is fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled it. Faith in Christ in him, or faith in Christ, is what makes you right before God. It was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We do not have to live under the law. For through faith, and then he changes the pronoun to you, now you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. You can be a child of God without following these religious laws. You can be God's child. And then chapter four, verse nine. But now, since you know God, or rather have become known by God, how can you turn your back again to the weak and worthless elements? What are the weak and worthless elements written about all through Galatians? 
the law. If you're known by God now, why do you feel pulled to go back to your religious tradition? Why do you feel pulled to convert to Judaism? Why do you feel like these laws are going to make you right before God? Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? Do you want to go back to the Old Testament rule where you have to offer sacrifices in order to be right before God and do all these cleansing? Why do you want to go back to that? You are observing special days, months, seasons, and years. He's talking about the festivals. He's talking about the Sabbath day. These Jews did not want to give up the Sabbath day. To this day, the Jews still observe the Sabbath day. This is important to them. And when Jesus came, he's Lord of the Sabbath. He did away with that. You can work on the Sabbath. You can eat grain on the Sabbath. He changed that, and they killed him for it. But he came to explain, this is no longer the law that you need to follow to be made right with God. And if you pretend like it's a law that you need to follow to be made right with God, you are deviating from the truth of the gospel. You do not have to go back to that law. And then verse 21, tell me, you who want to be under the law, don't you hear the law? Think about it. Sure, it's your tradition. Sure, it's your your granddaddy's granddaddy's granddaddy did it. Sure, it's compelling. But do you want to promote that this is how you be made right with God? Do you want, do you know that the law makes you lawbreakers because no one fulfills the law? No one's doing this perfectly. Don't you know what you're saying when you try to put people under the law? Then we get to Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. I've heard too many people preach this the wrong way. Slavery is not talking about sin. It's not talking about immorality. Read the book of Galatians. This whole time, slavery, imprisonment, the yoke is all about the law. Now, of course, Sin is a slave master too, but that's not what Paul is writing and that's not what they're thinking. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm them and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go back to the law. Take note, I, Paul, am telling you that if you get yourselves circumcised, Christ will be no benefit to you at all. Christ will not benefit you at all. Now, what is he saying to these Christians Christ is no good to you if you want to add the law to your faith in Christ. He's no good to you. The thing that he does is set you free and you're trying to be back into bondage under the law. That's why we know slavery is not talking about sin in verse 1 because in verse 2 he says, don't go back to sin. He says, why do you want to be circumcised? Why do you want to enter Judaism? Why do you want to revert back to the law? Again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to do the entire law. Meaning, if you try to obey the law of Moses, you got to do the whole thing, buddy, and you can't. No, God set us free from that. Get away from that. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ, and you have fallen from grace. So I did all that to explain what fallen from grace means. If you try to live under the law, and say the law is what makes me right, this tradition, this religious washing, whatever, these clothes, whatever law. It's not just the Jews that have laws. Other people have laws too. If you try to live under the law to make yourself right, you've alienated yourself from God and you have fallen from grace. That's what Peter did in Galatians chapter 2 and he stood condemned. Now, does that mean he lost his salvation? Does that mean he was never a Christian? No. 
Any person who puts their faith in Jesus, if you turn to some other law to, you think this is where you're gonna be made right and God likes you more because you do this, any of us that do that, and we all can do that, any of us stand alienated from Christ. He's no benefit to us at all because we're trusting in works and not in faith in Christ. Humble yourself and realize those things don't save you and they don't make you better than anybody else. That's what you need to be saved from, that yoke of slavery. So, and I can't read verses 5 through 9. Well, I will. Okay, verse 5. Yeah, I mean, you're already so late. You guys listen so slowly. I'm just going to tell you. Uh, You're so slow. For, For we eagerly await through the Spirit by faith the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision, talking about Judaism, under the law, this isn't just a medical act, don't think that, this is a right into a religious group. Circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. So if you're not Jewish, don't think, oh, I'm better because I'm not Jewish and I'm not, no. Neither accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. And verse seven, I have this because this is important to understand what fallen away means. You were running well. Now let me just ask you a simple question. If he says in chapter five, verse four, that you have fallen away from grace if you try to stand on the law instead of on Christ, if you fall away from grace, if you try to be righteous before God because of these things that you're doing, and then he says in verse seven, you were running well, would he be saying that to lost people? Are these people that can fall from grace lost? They think they're saved, but they're really lost. When an apostle tell a lost person who only thinks they're saved, you were running well. You were doing great. You, you were doing awesome. You were running the race that is set before you in faith. No. These are believers. Believers can fall from grace, just like Peter, which is an amazing story, the only one like it in the New Testament, where Peter stands condemned, fallen from grace, alienated from Christ. Why? Because he wouldn't eat with Gentiles. So believers can fall from grace. So fall from grace does not in any context in the entire New Testament, and it's used one more time, means about a saved person losing their salvation It also doesn't mean a lost person who thinks they're saved really never was saved. There's no context for that, even though Hebrews 6 is the one place where people try to place it in there. But that's not what fallen away means. I'm going to give you one more um, because we have so much time left. Verse 5. Sorry, Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. This verb, fallen away. Remember, therefore, from where you have Fallen. fallen. Okay. In, in the book of Revelation, John's writing, last book of the Bible, John's writing, he writes to the church at Ephesus. These are believers. These are Christians, full-blown Christians. And he tells these Ephesians, you've lost your first love. You've forgotten some things. And in verse 5, he says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. This is the verb pipto. This is the fallen away. This is the exact same verb root pipto. And then Jesus tells these people, repent. Now, let me ask you a question. If repentance is impossible after you've fallen away, then why would Jesus say repent if it's not possible? Why is he telling them to repent? 
Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from his place. He's not saying you're going to lose your salvation. He's talking about a church family. I'm going to remove the Holy Spirit from your church. That church will die. Now, enough tradition and enough money might keep it going for a while, but it's going to be dead. And you could tell it's dead as soon as you walk in. So he's saying, I'm going to remove my lampstand. I'm going to remove the Spirit from this church body if you guys do not repent, meaning you can repent. They can repent. But it says in verse 5 that they have fallen. They have fallen, not they could fall. They did fall. And then God tells them repent, which means you can repent after you've fallen. So you take all that and you go back to verse 6. These Jewish Christians who now are reverting back to Judaism, this law to make themselves righteous, that's what fallen away means in every context of fallen away. And then a fallen away it is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to themselves and holding him up to contempt. Now, you have to know how verbs are used in the Koine Greek in order to understand this passage. To restore is an infinitive. It doesn't have a time. Like if I use the phrase to jump, I don't give it time. I don't say they did jump, they are jumping, they will jump. There's no time in an infinitive. An infinitive borrows time from the verbs that are connected to it. You never have an infinitive by itself in Koine Greek. It's connected to another verb. Well, in this passage, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying, this is a little complicated, that phrase, since they are crucifying once again, is one word. It's one word in Greek. It's called a participle. It's like if a noun and a verb had a baby. It's, it's they, the ones who are crucifying once again, and it's in the present tense, meaning the infinitive to restore is in the present tense. So that's why in English, in the ESV, it says, since they are crucifying. The word sense, which is, uh, it looks like an E and an I, it's epsilon iota, it's not there in this passage. Why? You don't need the word sense because it's present in the participle. However, you could translate that participle two different ways. You can say since they are crucifying or while they are crucifying because it's in the present tense. It's right now. So you can read this. Those who have fallen away, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance while they are crucifying, once again, the Son of God, and another present tense participle, and holding him up to contempt, or your version might say putting him up to contempt, uh, putting him up to shame. Some, some versions, English versions say shame. It's two participles that are all those English words, but it's just one Greek word for like five words at once. So this is saying it's impossible to restore that person to repentance present tense while they are doing this. So I'm going to give an illustration. Someone brought a stop sign to church uh, legally. This is okay. Um, and they brought the stop sign. This is one of the signs on repentance. When is repentance impossible? Uh, I'll illustrate it with a simple story, and then we'll be done. Uh, a guy in a nice Corvette is driving down the road. He comes to a stop sign, and he's supposed to stop, but he doesn't really stop. He slows down, and he drives past the stop sign. He didn't see the cop there. A cop pulls him over. He pulls him over, and he's talking to the guy. He's like, look, man, you, you ran that stop sign. That's illegal. And the arrogant Corvette driver is like, well, I did slow down. I mean, there's like no one around. It's not a big deal. He's like, no, 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 no. 
I need you to understand that the rule is you stop at the stop sign. You don't just slow down. You need to stop. And he's still arrogant and like, you know, brushing it off like, hey, man, I slowed down. What's the big deal? And so the cop's like, get out of the car. The guy gets out of the Corvette. The cop takes out his nightstand and starts hitting his red Corvette. And the, the driver's like, whoa, dude, stop. And he's like, do you want me to stop or do you want me to slow down? What do you really want me to do? The illustration there is the, the driver was not repentant. He didn't care because he was still doing it. This passage, what it means is you cannot repent while you are actively doing this. That's the sense they are crucifying again and putting them up. You cannot repent while you're doing that. If you are looking for justification and repentance outside of Jesus, you cannot repent. There is no thinking the way that God thinks or wanting what God wants outside of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the only one that can make us right. And people nowadays, I know not everybody in this room, you, you read social media about Kanye and Donald Trump and uh, who's that one actor, Kevin Spacey. You, I know a lot of you aren't into modern time. That's totally fine and, good, and you're better off for it. You look at where our society is looking for repentance. You know where they're looking for repentance? The public opinion, social media, being on the right side of history, agreeing with this person, or promoting this day, or promoting this cause. That's what makes me right. If you look for repentance outside of Jesus, you'll never find it, and that's why people won't find it. You can only find it in Christ. But in order to repent, you've got to stop. It is impossible for you to repent while you're doing it. That's why in verses 7 and 8, the, the Hebrew author uses a farming illustration. He says, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. You guys know this. If you plant seeds, it grows and it produces fruit. That's great. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless, and this word is actually in the original language and important, and is near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. The idea is, you. I know this sounds bad, you can be a worthless Christian if in your action you are looking for repentance outside of Christ, or like Peter did, you throw down the ribs, you turn over there and pretend you're all righteous because you're with the Jews. That is a crop that produces thorns and thistles. And you know what it's used for? For burning. It's no good. It's not fruitful. And so what the author is saying is, you're no good, even though they have faith, you're no good if you're looking for repentance outside of Jesus, if you're trying to obey and, and earn all this through the law. And so the idea is to stop. You have to stop whatever it is you're looking for, look for it in Christ, that's the only way to find repentance. Uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for this church family. I thank you for your word. Uh, there's so much to study and learn, and there's more to learn in Hebrews and Galatians. Your word is so rich. We pray that you would bless our church family. Help us to find our repentance in you. It is impossible to find it outside of you. And we pray for those who have fallen away, uh, that are looking for repentance and something else, uh, we pray that you would convict them, that they would stop, and from stopping looking in those things, that they would find repentance in you, 
that Revelation 2.5 would be a warning for all of us uh, not to forsake our first love and not to fall away from grace. Help us to remember what grace is. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.